Technology and food have to be in the top five passions for any nerd. I'm Chris Riley, tech advocate for Splunk, SweetCode contributor, and bad coder turned dev enthusiast. I sit down to eat with techies to talk about modern technologies, careers in tech, and advancement in development practices. My employer does not own or sponsor this podcast. My thoughts are my own, and no guests were drugged or coerced during the recording. This is Developers Eating the World. All right, Donald. We're here at Panera, which was just the easiest place to go, yeah. right? which is in my old stomping grounds. So oh, I think really? I told, yeah, I grew up in Centennial. Oh, okay. So we're South Denver, somewhere Panera. I got, you know, egg sandwich and a bagel. I picked um, it because it was easy relative to what I was doing today because I said, okay, go there. Hopefully it's not too weird for him. It'll work. <laughs> <laughs> no, but what, is, what would classify as weird? Well, I don't, I, sometimes when I tell people we should go somewhere I'll pick some place like sometimes I place just some random place like it's like comfortable like there's a bagel deli up the street and they show up and people are like this is kind of dark and odd I said I know but it's all right <laughs> you're gonna beat me up <laughs> <laughs> so tell me first what uh, you know what you're up to, to these days in, um, the, in the techie world in the techie world I really I would claim the past I mean I really, five or six years ago, got really into cloud-native microservices. It became really my focus, is how do you get to cloud-native? Because I, I really thought that was really important. So my company, Technotronic Solutions, we were doing cloud-native with uh, things like Fort Collins and other kind of smaller clients. And then um, I do this thing called Cloud First, and my wife said, hey, you know, you should like... Uh, I need more time, so maybe we should slow the business down. And you could do something else. So I ended up at uh, Via West, which uh -huh. was a basically yep. a data center company, and their goal was they were selling private cloud. So our goal, they had an application called Client Center, which would allow you to come in and you could spin up your VMware instance, your services, everything. But it was a monolith. So the whole idea is we need to take it to microservices. I don't want synchronous. I want Kafka. So we're going to use Kafka. Plugged it, all the Kafka in. There was a guy there, Bill, who was the head of the DevOps. We got to continuous delivery, continuous integration. It went pretty well. We even had our billing in Kafka, which made some people nervous because, you know, they view, they viewed it as like RabbitMQ. I'm like, it's really different. You send messages and the length of time, the consumers read it at their own thing. And you, it's kind of like an event source system. You can let it sit there for a long time. And then we, we did the billing there. And then we'd have, you know, different areas so we could keep on doing it. But it did make... The billing people extremely nervous because eventing sounds like, um, you know, eventual consistency scares people. So I always, I always use the Gregor Hop definition of eventual consistency that wakes people really. He said if you went to a coffee shop, he named one. It doesn't matter. You go to a coffee shop. If we were truly like a relational database system, it would be like a psychic thing. I'd go there, I'd get the cup of coffee, the the uh, transaction would be paid for. They'd know what to make, and it'd be done instantaneously. But in the real world, everything's eventually consistent. I place the order. If they mishear me, they ha may have to dump it. They may have to up do it again. At the end, I get my cup of coffee and I pay for it. Maybe up front, maybe at the end. That's an eventually That's a consistent. Crazy uh, point. <laughs> That's true. It's a great analogy. I use it with everybody, and people go, "Well, that's weird." I'm like, "You, you should." If you look at banking transactions, because I, you know, it, they don't they don't work the way you think. You think everything is instantaneously real time. It's not. If you're Warren Buffett, you have a policy that says you can actually do X with your money, and we're never going to check it. But if you're a Joe who works at, you know, 
somewhere else, you you have a you know you don't do instantaneous real time. We have this obsession with instantaneous real time, like somehow that's a reality of you know huh. Udi Ahan years ago used to, he did some stock market stuff. There's a great podcast I'll send it to you where he talked about when he worked with Wall Street, telling people that these transactions are 10 minutes old, so you should be able to respond using your brain about how these things work. Interesting. All right, I'm going to have to grapple with that all weekend. <laughs> You've already, like, overshot my brain for the morning. I just got back from reInvent, dude. Well, I just think those things are really cool concepts. Like, eventual consistency is kind of a thing that's a reality, but people are like, you know... They're afraid of it, but they haven't... They haven't really wrestled well, you're with also what it means. talking about a super technical topic that it would be really hard to explain to a financial person anyways. I know. Trust me, I did it this week, and they're like, what are you talking about? So you're on LinkedIn. You're just a, like a newsfeed machine, and the content you put out there is great. So if you're listening, you should absolutely follow Donald. It's fantastic. Um, if I read although it, I'm I... very specific about who I follow, <laughs> and so my feed is very limited. That's why I see all your content. Um, what you know? What are the big trends you see right now? Well, Kubernetes has yeah. become the trend. It's lately they've been talking about it. It's there was a good article. Is, is it a silver bullet? Are we addressing it? Oh. I don't think it is, but it's an interesting. You know, Kubernetes solves a lot of very issues that you know have plagued for a while. I'm now reading uh, the Unicorn Book by Gene uh, Kim, yep, yep. and I'm trying to decide whether it's a diatribe or, or he is. He has interesting things in there, like you know the Kumquat database. You know that's my favorite in the whole book. I'm not going to comment, but <laughs> it's a good book. It's a good book. Yeah, it's a great book. I mean, I really think the real thing that I, the trend I think is really is, is, is DevOps is the trend, but the real thing is making software engineering and DevOps more aligned because in the end, that's what really needs to happen. And it's still a problem, right? It's At still a problem. I think it's a total problem. You know, because I've dealt with the past two companies, Faction and. Vios, you know, you know, you know, the software guys think they're software guys and they're not doing DevOps, and DevOps guys think they're just doing infrastructure, and like getting them sort of aligned is, and I think we do both. It it, it is fundamentally both, and I always say, as soon as we got Docker, you're doing both. But you know, they're like, yeah, but Docker just makes it easy to deploy, and I'm like, okay, point taken, right? You guys need to think about that, right? That's the value of Docker. You know, you can look at what it means to DevOps and software engineering. It means the same thing, no matter what you guys think. Right. <laughs> well, we were talking earlier about still this people being afraid to share because they think sharing is loss of power. And you know, you can look at the other ways. If you don't share, you could really lose power. You totally lose power. But you know, the sharing thing is you know that's a. I don't know, that's sort of like the business non... I see it more when I deal with companies, when, in my consulting business years ago, when I would deal with you know, companies that weren't technology focused, politics was more important, even though they were doing technological solutions. Right. If they were in charge, that political power is what they were trying to preserve in the position they were. And technology didn't necessarily make it easy for them to achieve that. Right. But when I've been in technical companies, it's different. You know, I mean... You know, you know, in Flex Central and Faction, technology was less, was important, and the politics were less, so you could actually focus on here's what we're trying to deliver. But it was also kind of like 
people, the cloud native thing is also coming on really strong now that people are beginning to realize like, because at Faction we did, we enabled multi-cloud storage. So we could allow, you could basically run your storage on our system in AWS and VMware. Or then do the same thing in Azure, because mm -hmm. that was the way we were plugging in our storage. Okay. So we had cloud control was, volumes. Would that be similar to like a Portworks? It could be, we had mm -hmm. a few extra, we had a few patents that gave us some magic when it came to the ingress pieces. Got it. So that, that was the difference. But the interesting thing is what you saw, what I've been noticing is VMware, I'm seeing people now say, well, we could go to the cloud of VMware, but then that's another lift and shift. So do we want to do the lift and shift now and go native? and forget doing this intermediate because it's always so painful because mm -hmm. we'll never maybe leave VMware and maybe we don't want to do that. You know, it's interesting, and I just realized now that you said it because I've been at a lot of trade shows lately and doing a lot of booth duty. Um, just came back from reInvent. I, I can count, I think, 15 people at the booth who asked me if our solution was on-prem. and. It didn't strike me as odd at the time, but now I think about it, that's extremely odd. You're at a cloud event, but they're still asking the on-prem question. It's still a big thing. <laughs> it's still, it's not, not a big thing because you, where I'm kind of working around with this large financial institution, they have you know, legacy mainframe data that they don't know how they would move it off-prem because some of the older, you know, DB2 and stuff, it's not as simple to say you just move the data into name your cloud database and right. it, it, because there are various weird logical things that are beyond stored procedures that are built into some of those old batch things. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. yeah I was like, what? It's stored procs, right? That's right, but they also have these really elaborate batch things. My brother's that run. dealing with that now. So it's kind of interesting. And they're, you know, I think that's a, and I think that's not going to go away, but it's still, you know, it's sort of an interesting evolution. You know what I mean? Because people have to see, like, you know, you know, the fact that there's still COBOL out there and, you know, all these things that, you know, are amazing that I've never honestly dealt with, but you're like, wow, it's still there. So I'm big <laughs> on the uh, mainframe thing now, and I think it's just because, you know, techies ever once in a while just want to be super retro, like, you get your Nintendo and you get your... <laughs> And I feel the same way, but people have been telling me what's crazy about mainframes is that they're super fast. Like, processing power is insane. And so I've been big on ZOS and all that stuff. There's a whole bunch of DevOps.com articles on um, this stuff. So I kind of have this nostalgia feeling, like, how can we bring mainframes into DevOps? That could well, be yeah. a really fun challenge. It would be, it, it's something that's going to have to happen. I always joke that, you know, the cloud is time-sharing, just reinvented. And people go, what? I'm like, well, no, it is. No, it absolutely is. <laughs> yeah, but terminal. Like, what are laptops these days? All we ever open is a browser. I know. So it's just people think that's funny. And I'm like, well, it kind of flipped on its head. You know, we, we saw these evolution. Oh, get faster mini computers. Get mini computers to PC. Right. Oh, client server. Oh, look. Oh, we're going backwards again. This is, like, interesting. Oh. Yeah. You know. Yeah, and that's kind of the common trend. And then, but the problem is it's sold as this cloud thing where they expect magic once they adopt it. Like, oh, I don't have to do anything? I just, uh, there's still a lot of work to be done. Well, I think people think because it's, it, it gets presented like there's not, you don't have to do a lot. I, that's what right. I think. Yeah. I mean, I saw it with yep. customers, you know, like that was kind of like. Vendors are guilty, yep. Uh, don't deny it. You know, they tell them stuff that isn't always true, you know, and it's kind of the way it is, you know, both Amazon and Microsoft are trying to portray it as super simple all the time, which, you know, 
Uh, all right, so we talked about trends. We talked about what you're working on. Um, what are your thoughts on the world of serverless? I like serverless. Um, surprisingly, I got really into some of the ideas that are going on with Knative, and then Azure has one with durable functions, and it's really interesting because microservices are all stateless, but I really years ago did a lot with actors. So an actor is a component that basically is single-threaded and uses a mailbox to receive a message, and you can have all these actors processing, which is really fast. And Azure is built with Microsoft's actor framework called Service Fabric behind the scenes. That's how they built it. Right. So I found them really interesting, and I discovered, I did a talk at my own uh, meetup a couple months ago that Microsoft built their own serverless in Azure durable functions, and behind the scenes it uses all this domain-driven concepts. So I don't know if you're familiar with DDD or any of those concepts. Well, behind the scenes it uses, you save aggregates, you save them into an event source system behind the scene at a small level so you can keep the state going, and then and then you can, and so, so you can actually share that between all these uh -huh. durable functions. It's really cool. Knative does a similar kind of thing, and okay. then the Akka guys have created another one. I can't think of the name, and it's the same concept. It's taking DDD concepts and applying them with event sourcing and small level aggregates, so you only you don't save the whole thing, you only save the thing you're interested in and the difference between the states. Because that's a really hard thing with, if I wanted to be 100% serverless, I have to re-architect my entire application to be event-driven. Right. Well, and I think a if it's a big challenge, but I do think adventure when we're going. You know, the whole, I got into the whole reactive, Vernon Vaughn reactive stuff. Did a lot of actors. I found it interesting, so that's kind of the reason I I can move Kafka easier into companies because you know they because they kind of view it as they don't really get that it's reactive, and I really don't care where it persists, and I really just want it to stream endlessly. But everybody's like, well, where does it live? I'm like, okay, that's an interesting question. Where does it live? Okay, and when I built the Kafka solutions, I also built, used Greg Rung's event store, so we'd save all the states so we could roll it back. So if I know it's just like, it's like an audit log, you know, if I know that I like sold 12 sneakers and then I did 20 more and this, you can roll all the events and get back to your state. So I think that's a really, really powerful concept. Right. But most software developers, just those concepts are not, currency that they play in. Even DDD is still not, you know, as important as I think it needs to be. I love event storming. I, I've done, I, I did that, I do it even with my kids in robotics, you know, take sticky notes and figure out what are your aggregates, what are your events, what are your commands, to create that ubiquitous language that says, because when you're working in the business, you if we both call it foo, It'd be really good we know what it is. And sometimes when you write a user story, you don't know what foo is. You just wrote down the user story. But you you know, oh, foo is this aggregate that's a customer. And when I create one of these, I have to update the address so I get really good at knowing what they are. I think they're valuable techniques. So they're simple. You can that's just use sticky notes and markers. You do have to like wrap your brain around a whole different paradigm. paradigm. Like I've been struggling with observability and distributed tracing. And that's still, like that's just, tracing a linear path, but it has multiple spots, right? So that's still really hard to kind of grapple with. Well, I'm glad you said robotics because you've been doing stuff around robotics and kids. For 15 years. So first was a program created by Dean Kamen, who created the Segway, everybody knows that. But he created more medical inventions than anybody else. And he worked, 30 years ago, he created this program with Woody Flowers, who was the professor emeritus of mechanical engineering who recently passed away and he wanted to get kids interested in STEM and science. Uh -huh. So the original program was you had a, 
the, the, the high school program was called FRC, First Robotics Competition, and their values and they're like gracious professionals. And so like four years ago at the World Championship, and it's always three on three, so I'll kind of explain a little more about that. But one of the alliances, either the blue or the red, I don't know which one, blew their chain, and the other alliance gave them the chain, and they won the World Championship, but that's gracious professionalism. Compete like mad, but be nice to people. So it's a really interesting concept. Compete like mad, be nice. So Don and I read about Team 159. It was the only team in the state in Colorado at the time, and we drove up to Fort Collins and met them. Some, we came back and started doing Lego League, which is, uses Lego robotics, smaller, formed three teams at our school. And the next thing you know, we were running the whole thing. We don't know how it happened. It wasn't a plan. Like tomorrow, we're doing the state championship for FLL. We, we have 20 tournaments for FTC and FLL. We need about 2,000 volunteers right now. We've raised up. It, we, um, it, you know, we have to raise you know, quite a large sum of money to run all the, pl the programs. But uh, I also mentor a high school team. Uh huh. Um, so the, the well, high, high school, uh, George Washington High School. Okay. Uh, we've cool. we've won two what are called um, two competitions the past couple of years. We got invited to a thing called IRI, which is like the Super Bowl of robotics in the high school level. You have to be invited. So our goal is to show you can even take a lot of the top teams are in NASA and Google. So we've taken a high school team and made them competitive nice. like these other teams. But it, it's a lot of work. I am, thank you. During the school season, the kids and the mentors, we work for 40 hours for six weeks because that's what it takes to be competitive because you only have six weeks to build a robot and compete. Whoa. And every year the challenge is different. I was going to say I'll help, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, I want you to come by and see it. <laughs> I'd absolutely, yeah, I'd love to. So I'll, the I'd robotics love... thing's become a big part of our life. It's really important. You, you get to change kids' lives because mm. some of the kids have really good, yeah. good families and everything. Some kids don't. You can have kids that are like, you know, challenging we had one kid sam who had a lot of problems in his life um we got him into college we kind of changed his life you know he was he had a lot of difficulties because of his family schizophrenic mother you kind of name it but we kind of redirected him you know and he kept on saying well yeah he wanted to fix his mother and i said you never fix your mother what we can do is you can learn a skill programming and you can create the life you want because you never fix her. Because I hate to tell you this, you're always the kid and she's always the parent. Right. <laughs> yeah, robotics is crazy. I mean, right now we're in a time where a lot of people don't realize it, but robotics and automation is a big chunk of the political ecosystem and the political platform. Like People aren't talking about the fact that and I'm not going to get political, but... They don't know, know about robots it. Robots aren't going away. No. <laughs> you know, they build new data centers these days, and you're like, oh, data center, they're going to hire a thousand employees. No, they're not. No, they're not. <laughs> well, and it's it's that was, you know, the, but Dean's also idea was that he thought, his big idea was that he views this as his greatest invention. He has 400 inventions. He's in the Inventor Hall of Fame. He's more medical inventions than anybody else. He views first as the greatest invention because he doesn't know which one of those kids is going to cure cancer or right. whatever because the whole idea isn't the robot is just a vehicle to get kids into figuring out what they want to do with their life and doing something meaningful. So like we have a new slogan saying every kid can turn pro, which all that's about is that if you're an athlete or XYZ, sometimes you can't get to that level, but here it's easier because you have, you're all equivalent. You can figure out where to go. Right. That's awesome. So, you know, you're painting the future for these kids. How did you get started in tech? Um, I hacked the phone system when I was a teenager. <laughs> blue um, boxing? Made a blue box. <laughs> uh, 
did all that. Uh, awesome. It wasn't, wasn't really on purpose. We were just bored kids. We used to enter in, um, out of Dr. Dobbs Journal um, entries of uh, games, and you know we just kind of did that because we thought it was really interesting. That's awesome. You know, it wasn't wasn't really kind of deliberate. I didn't know. It's I didn't think tactical. it was a career. I thought of it as. Can I do it? Can I do yeah, it? Yeah, I um, <laughs> I hacked my Pentax's BBS. And I didn't realize what I'd done until I actually did it. My mom worked at Pentax. Okay. And um, you know, Pentax, I don't think, Pentax is not around in any form anymore. But yeah, she worked so there either. for a long time. And it was right during the bulletin board BBS stuff. And I had my own BBS. And I'm like, oh, I realized that Pentax had one. I'm like, let's see what happens. So. It just didn't, you know, like I tell the kids about it, the Captain Crunch whistle, and they're like, what's that about? When I tell yeah. them, Heath blew everything at the end of the phone, so you can figure out, it puts a 5 ESS switch off hook, and it happened to be the Captain Crunch whistle. They're like, what? I'm like, that's like hacking, even no, though it wasn't Captain as... Captain Crunch is not even a thing anymore. I know. <laughs> you can't buy that toxic cereal. I know, but I, I miss mean... my just, toxic cereal. I like those, but they're like, you're kidding me. I'm like, no, I mean, that's kind of like hacking. Hacking isn't just like typing at the keyboard. It's like you right. got to figure out how to break this system, right. whatever it is. I know, and that's the misconception <laughs> about hacking. It's a, it's a lot of. Uh, so, you you did that. Did you get a computer science degree? No, engineering? I went and studied physics and math, and okay. did all. I did that because I was at the time where I was. I didn't really have. They didn't have like computer science stuff and that. But I didn't really. I didn't think of it that way. And then I just said, you know, I. But I didn't think. Well, I had a revelationary moment. I was working with this guy, Herb Bernstein, and I realized I was really good at math, but I never understood what the physics meant because I could do the calculations, and he'd go, well, this means this. I'm like, if you tell me that, that's true. I guess so. And so then you I do the symbolic. Symbology. Yeah. So that's when I decided you know, I should probably end up doing computer things. It wasn't really that well thought out. It was just I realized that if I ended up in a physics lab, I'd, I could see me doing the calculations. go, it integrated to one, and they're like, what does that mean? It's one. <laughs> and they're like you don't understand that it. it changed the level nope <laughs> I think and I'm not a physicist by any means so I'm not gonna but when it came to computer science that's why I do what I do I can't do it so I talk about it I um, was much better at the theoretical aspects of computer science than the implementation aspects I really sucked at the implementation no I love your little thing bad coder it cracks me up yeah, it's just the way you yeah, say it which it's is so absolutely funny. true <laughs> It's absolutely true. I'm not lying. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to play, we'll, we'll finish up. I'm going to play this little game I've started playing with everybody where I throw out industry terms and you give me your reaction. Um, first one is AI ops. Um, I, all I think of is Arnold from Terminator. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't, I just see this guy like, I got to shoot you. I don't get, I know what they're trying to do. It just, the way it, so, it sounds like a stupid mouthful. Yep. I know that's the problem I have with it. <laughs> that's great. So we'll we'll continue in that same vein to see if you think any different about this one, ML. I back and forth on that. You know, it's because I when I look at all the statistical algorithms we use, I have a hard time equating the learning with the extreme that we take it to. Because we, we use it on our first team, we use that to do our scouting. We watch all the matches and we actually put in Twitter what we think they're gonna do. And the kids go, oh, it's learning. I'm like, no, we ran a bunch of statistical algorithms and we right. printed out That's there what, what happened. That's what I keep on saying. It's actually just stats 201. <laughs> but, you know, I know the data science people don't like that, so I, you know, I try not to make them want to kill me. <laughs> Good. All right, we're on the same page so far. Um, 
We did serverless. Ooh, chaos engineering. Um, I think it's a good idea. Um, I have not been able to, and I wasn't able to do it at um, Via West. We discussed it, and it made everyone too nervous. At Faction, we talked about it once again, nervous. I have done it on my own stuff. I did it on my own little um, projects, but not professionally because I've had management people get super nervous that, you know, what if things go wrong? And I reuse the argument, you know, Netflix did this deliberately to make sure... Constantly. Constantly. But people find that distressing, even though I think it's probably the right thing. I mean, the reason NASA launches test rockets or things, you need to know if the thing's going to blow up on the pad, and it doesn't mean it might not eventually still blow up on the pad. That's another good point. It's like we <laughs> test stuff on purpose, right? Well, that happened to Elon Musk, didn't it? What was that capsule that just caught on fire? Yep. But, but we know that, but for some reason, because people think if we're running, whether it's a data center or Salesforce, if we, if we destroy the thing that generates the money, then we're stupid, which is a weird thing because, you know, it's like, don't you kind of want to know, like, if you do that, then all your passwords are exposed to the non-hipper Salesforce instance, and that's bad, but you're afraid to do it, so you don't do it? That's weird. Yeah, I'm all about chaos engineering. I think part of the problem is kind of that whole what you were saying before. It's like people are just afraid of it. And it's hard to explain once those walls go up, but that's a people problem and people problems suck. People problems are hard because when people get, I mean, a lot of the, you know, that's like the children of DevOps problem, the, you know, Faction, we, we were doing software DevOps because we were automating this thing called Faction Block 2 where we take VMware and automate how it works. But the, the operations people all did it by hand. It used Python and other tools, Ansible, you name it. We were doing Terraform and other stuff. But our stuff was kind of like not what they wanted to know about. Right. For whatever reason, because yeah. somehow we were going to affect their job, which is not necessarily what was going to happen. Right. Okay, that last one. Um, feature flags. Okay, I've been going... Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I had a good. long discussion with a friend of mine who used to work for me at Faction, who now is somewhere else, and he's been talking about feature flags. So I reread the O'Reilly feature flag book no. that came out Very recently. Nice. And then I told him, I like it. I, I like the idea of having policies that determine who can see what, where, when. I'm concerned that that needs to be put in in a thoughtful way so you've defined roles right. and responsibilities and policies correctly. The way that we did it at Faction would seem somewhat random and less that way because products like we need to have these things put in here. And I would claim that, that we didn't do as much that we should. So you're talking about kind of the, not the feature flag, the, the functionality, but but the manage, the mechanism, mechanism of deciding. deciding. Yeah. I, that's the part yeah. that concerns me and a lot. And the information architecture of feature flags, especially right. in microservices world where a feature might span multiple services. Right. And I've been thinking about that a lot lately. And I'm I, super into feature flags. What I what I what I'm struggling with the feature flags is the vendors that offer solutions right now. I've never looked at a solution from a vendor. So they're talking to unicorny, and oh. they're alienating the value of feature flags. I mean, basically, what they say is, you know, test in production and blah blah, blah all the all the stuff that scares people. I'm like, you're not going to get people to adopt if you use all the terms that terrify them. No, because like, people don't like that. Yeah, let's talk about feature flags as a management tool that can go from plan to prod, and but yeah, you have to have the information architecture in the in the controls. That's interesting. Yeah, and I don't think they're always there like they need to be. Okay, good. Well, I think we're on the same page. <laughs>
Yeah, <laughs> um, just for some reason makes my skin crawl. Uh, yeah, I, I hate it. <laughs> I absolutely hate it, and I'll go on record saying that. Um, I uh, it, it drives me up the wall. I keep on thinking it's going to appear in some executive's PowerPoint. We have AI ops, so we know everything's working. Oh, it already has. <laughs> this has already happened. Well, there's a few vendors I can't name who they are. Who it took them five years to realize how problematic it was that they were selling this black box that supposedly did magic. Like he came back and bought, bit them. Um, one of them was at reInvent, had a huge booth there, and I noticed they don't have AI ops anywhere on their booth anymore. Oh, they took it off. They were formed under that premise. So I'll let everybody guess who that is. I'll think about that. I'll, I'll tell you after I stop the I hit the stop button here. Um, but anyways, Donald, thanks for inviting really me out. It. Yeah, this was fun. And we'll do it again. Yeah, we'll do it we again. We have to do it at one of your meetups or something. So yeah. I'll make sure it. I invite you. <laughs> thanks. Okay. Thanks.